Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. And this week, we are talking to Mitch Daniels. He is the president of Purdue University, the former governor of Indiana, the former director of the Office of Management and Budget under George W. Bush. And he even worked in the Reagan administration, the White House Director of Political and Intergovernmental Affairs. We have a lot to talk about, but I think most importantly, what's going on in higher ed these days? Let's dive in. Steve, first a disclosure. Yeah, I, I have to start this podcast with a disclosure because I uh, owe a lifelong debt to Mitch Daniels. Um, you may not remember this, but I certainly do. Um, the, the man who would go on to be the feared uh, budget-cutting deficit hawk in George W. Bush's uh, Office of Management and Budget is responsible for uh, giving me, or at least pushing others to give me my first substantial raise um, in my professional life. I was running something called the Institute on Political Journalism at Georgetown University, which was a project of a group called the Fund for American Studies. And Mitch Daniels was the chairman of the Board of Visitors of that program. And at one board meeting, he asked me to leave the room, uh, met with the other Board of Visitors members, and I later found out that you had recommended me for a pretty, at the time, for me, a, a pretty serious raise. So I'm, I'm really not going to be able to be objective here about this because <laughs> that allowed me to buy, I used to buy something special every time I got a raise, and that allowed me to buy a big television that my roommates and I called The Prize. So I owe you for that. And I will not be able to be objective throughout the rest of this podcast. Well, you bring up a very painful memory. You know, I don't know what was uh, <laughs> wrong with me that day. And I, I, uh, I regretted it. I'm sure I apologize to the rest <laughs> of the board later, but uh, I guess you finally justified it. Steve. So I'll, I'll quit feeling guilty. I'm not sure, but it was, it was necessary. I needed it. <laughs> <laughs> I have a different bias that I have to disclose. This weekend, we are driving to Syracuse for uh, my husband's grandfather's 96th birthday. He shares that birthday with my son. Uh, the grandfather is a World War II vet and Purdue alum. His son, my uh, in-laws, met at Purdue and for their retirement have moved back to West Lafayette where he teaches at Purdue Medical School. My husband is a Purdue alum, and my son has a little Purdue, you know, number one sign. Um, I am a Northwestern grad myself, so a lot of Big Ten love in this household. Here's the question that I want to start with. Richard Vetter, another Big Tenner, he's a Northwestern graduate, University of Illinois graduate, and a professor at Ohio State, said... President Daniels is the closest thing I know to an academic secular saint whose innovations such as long-term tuition freeze, Purdue Global Online Education, and innovative income share agreements to finance college are highly praiseworthy. But in particular, he wanted to signal something you're doing this fall, which is the plan to adopt a civics literacy graduation requirement for all undergraduates beginning with the uh, Purdue students who enter this fall. 
What is the thought behind that? And do you think it can make a real difference? These questions are going to get harder, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) It's daunting prospect. Yeah, well, uh, it's hardly an original idea. And uh, and only time will tell whether it uh, works well or doesn't. Uh, I hope we do a good job of it. But the uh, the uh, premise and the motivation, uh, I think, should be pretty obvious for, I don't know, maybe three decades now at least. Everybody who's gone out and sampled or surveyed or tested um, the young people in particular has found an abysmal lack of understanding of our free institutions, uh, how they operate, why they are set up as uh, as they are. And of course, now, uh, uh, decades later, the adults don't know these things either. So, you know, it gets it'd be comical if it weren't so alarming when people think, I don't know, Judge Judy's on the Supreme Court and. Uh, I didn't make that up, by the way. And, uh, uh, you know, that only uh, small minorities uh, can uh, explain uh, to an interviewer even the uh, most basic rudiments of our uh, of our uh, constitution, of our uh, system of, uh, of uh, limited rights and and how it's supposed to work. So um, we're pretty sure that uh, Boilermakers are couple steps ahead of the average, but nowhere near where they probably need to be. And so we don't imagine anything burdensome, but uh, there will be uh, three pathways a student can take, including taking uh, um, a course or uh, uh, a series of podcasts. Uh, One of our uh, uh, alums founded C-SPAN, and we have the archives here, and we have a really, I think, a pretty solid set of podcasts that they have put together. Uh, And um, uh, then the uh, the third alternative is to attend uh, uh, an, uh, at least six uh, events. Um, I try to make certain that we have a reasonable traffic flow of interesting and diverse uh, opinion uh, coming through campus. And so the student can pick any of those paths and then take a fairly simple test. And they can do that anytime in four years. So uh, it, it won't uh, solve the problem, but it will say to the world that uh, – uh, someone graduating from here, um, in addition to all the other great things we know about Purdue graduates, readiness for work and so forth, is also uh, uh, civic certified. Civic education has been lacking in the country, as you said, for decades. What do you think was important about now? What was the urgency that pushed this over the edge for 2021 that perhaps had not been the case four years ago, 10 years ago? Well, first of all, I brought this up about three years ago, and um, I've, I've got a, a lot of uh, uh, jocular ways of talking about the pace of change in higher ed, but I'll spare the, I'll spare the audience those. But uh, again, this is hardly a new concern. Uh, there have been civic groups. Uh, I remember uh, Justice O'Connor, uh, pro- upon leaving the Supreme Court, one of the first speeches she gave, and I think uh, I tried to start a movement to, for improvement here. So it was overdue. Now, I will say that uh, these days, it's not simply a matter of young people being uneducated about our uh, system and about its uh, uh, workings and its merits. They're being miseducated in too many uh, cases. And so if there's greater urgency, I would, uh, if you, su- if you uh, suspect there's greater urgency, I think you're right. Uh, you were carried into the commencement ceremonies on a couch last month. Why? 
Oh, for fun. You know, it's been a, it's been a hard year in higher ed. We were open all year with uh, a high, as high a percentage of in-person classes as, as uh, probably any school our size. And, uh, um, it was our first outdoor commencement. We make quite a, a practice here at Purdue of uh, uh, even at the size we've reached, uh, honoring each student individually. And so we weren't able to do that in our indoor uh, auditorium. But uh, no, uh, this spring, a couple of uh, students in a very Purdue-like uh, Boilermaker tradition, you know, we're, we're inventors uh, here. Our, our, our graduates are engineers and tinkerers and and innovators. And uh, one day, uh, two guys showed up blowing through campus about 12 or 15 miles an hour on their beat up couch, just the one, <laughs> uh, Steve, you'll remember from some college uh, room <laughs> with holes in it and, uh, you know, uh, probably hygienic problems, I'm not sure. And uh, yeah, they had, uh, they had motorized it, go-kart engine and a, uh, and a gr- uh, the chassis was a, I think was a, a garden cart from uh, Menards or somewhere. And uh, <laughs> So I thought that looked like fun, and I got word to them that I uh, I wanted to ride before they graduated. And while we're taking the ride, we decided, hey, why not uh, graduation day? <laughs> um, your speech there, you mentioned uh, moments ago that you got the school through COVID, through the pandemic, lots of uh, in-person classes. I want to just read a section of your speech because... Um, you were very critical of of others who didn't do that. The speech was broadly uh, about risk and taking risks and being smart about risks. And you had some pretty sharp criticism. Uh, you said, this last year, many of your elders failed this fundamental test of leadership. They let their understandable human fear of uncertainty overcome their duty to balance all the interests for which they were responsible. They hid behind the advice of experts in one field but ignored the warnings of experts in other realms that they might do harm beyond the good they hope to accomplish. And here's where you get, I'd say, even sharper. Sometimes they let what might be termed the mad pursuit of zero, in this case, zero risk of anyone contracting the virus, block out all other competing concerns like the protection of mental health, the educational needs of small children, or the survival of small businesses. Pursuing one goal to the utter exclusion of all others is not to make a choice, but to run from it. It's not leadership, it's abdication. That is tough criticism. Who were you talking about in that passage? I was careful not to single out anybody. I just It was a, it was a general comment about what I thought was a general um, shortcoming across the country. I was thinking certainly as much about people in uh, uh, elected public office or other uh, 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 public service capabilities as um, perhaps even more than uh, people in the uh, sector where I work now. No, I mean, I, I just found it frustrating, and more so as the year went on. I mean, I, uh, I think we all have to be very understanding of decisions made in the early months of this. No one knew what we were dealing with. No one knew how deadly. Um, uh, no one knew what would work best to protect people. But um, the essence of leadership or the essence of uh, one's uh, duty in any position of, of broad responsibility or authority is uh, by it's by definition, it's to balance interests and, and to decide among competing priorities and, um, uh, and to make trade-offs. And 
as a society, we did a lousy job of that. And I, I think there's lots of, of uh, uh, responsibility to go around, including the, uh, the way in which uh, um, uh, all this was reported or information was purveyed about it. So, um, you know, that was, I thought it was an appropriate message for our students. We, we hope, and we know, we don't hope, we know we are sending people out of here ready to, for leadership. And uh, I just wanted to remind our students that they're going to uh, uh, probably sooner than they expect be asked to make choices um, and, um, and to uh, uh, make trade-offs and to take the tools that they learned here of data uh, analysis. I told them, listen, you've got the tools. You know not to confuse correlation with causation. Uh, you understand the difference between statistically significant and statistically meaningless uh, numbers. Uh, you understand what the law of diminishing returns is. You've got the toolbox. What, you, what you're going to need, however, is the, um, is the will to uh, apply those uh, tools and make the choices someone has entrusted you with the uh, duty to make. I want to talk about another part of the speech. It was a great speech, and we'll put the link in our show notes so that everyone can read it. Great societies before us tended to look backward for their inspiration, to locate their golden ages in the past. Here in the United States, uh, in reference, our eyes have always been forward. Now signs abound of Americans losing that eagerness to move ahead boldly. Before the virus visit us, there were already troubling signs that fearfulness was beginning to erode the spirit of adventure, the willingness to take considered risk on which this nation's greatness was built and from which all progress originates. Rates of business startups moving in pursuit of a better job or the strongest of all bets on the future, having children, have all fallen sharply in recent years. And now there are warnings that the year 2020 may have weakened that spirit further. What do you attribute that to? What are the solutions? I'm not sure I can trace it all to root causes. I'm just I'm just observing phenomena that many other people have, have fretted about uh, uh, for, for quite a long time. As I say, it all predates the uh, pandemic. Uh, I thought it was aggravated uh, uh, or, or exacerbated by by our reaction to that. No, I mean um, it's it's hardly uh, a, a great insight to to, to observe that that the progress, particularly the progress of a dynamic free society that we're lucky enough to live in, uh, has come from uh, uh, reasonable, uh, calculated risk-taking uh, from the, uh, we, we once thought about the pioneer spirit and uh, that, uh, that certainly drove the early, the first uh, and part of the second century of this country. And, uh, you know, I hope we don't, we hope we don't lose it. The, the willingness to innovate Try new things, experiment, take the risk of failure or setbacks has never been more important than now, and uh, this would be the wrong time as a society to to uh, to see it wither. You know, again, I was I was speaking to, to what I believe was a very appropriate audience for this. This is the university that sent uh, twenty six uh, astronauts uh, to the space program more than any other. Uh, first and uh, most recent uh, men on the moon. Um, Amelia Earhart, I mentioned in the speech, you know, uh, countless entrepreneurs and uh, inventors and so forth. And it's um, it's what we're here for. And so it's a 
it's a subject that I might have I've thought about for a long time and could have talked about elsewhere, but I thought it was I thought it fit the moment uh, and the audience. What role do our politics have in shaping that for the future? Well, I think unfortunately that uh, a, a large one, um, uh, and, and it's uh, let's not let's not uh, beat up at least exclusively on our current generation of of uh, politicians. Uh, it's a risk in a democracy uh, to play to the short term, you know, to uh, you know buy short term favor uh, e- even at the expense of long term success. We see this, of course, in the um, you know, truly uh, terrifying uh, levels of death that we're accumulating right now, uh, and I think we see it all. We saw it also in too much, too often in the response to the recent uh, pandemic, in which uh, there was a lot of cheap applause. Let's face it, for those who um, took a completely uh, absolutist stance. Um, and uh, quick to condemnation of those who said, well, not so fast. What about children? What about mental health? What about the unattended health consequences? Of, uh, now it, We now know, and of course, the commercial and economic damage that was being done. And uh, we now know that, uh, uh, that those costs were probably even higher than people were estimating at the time. But um, uh, both in the political system and I must say in the journalistic world you inherit, you inhabit, um, uh, there was uh, there was precious little recognition that those those might those questions might might be legitimate. Um, let me ask you another question about risk and and in this case in on college campuses. You know we've seen lots of heard lots of discussion about sort of new wokeness on college campuses. The University of Virginia put out a statement last week from its board of visitors reaffirming its commitment to free inquiry. It was kind of a, it was a good statement in my view, but sort of banal, didn't say anything new. And yet we know that those kinds of statements will be controversial in the current environment. And you have university administrators and, and leaders who are so afraid of offending students or pushing back on demands of students that they seemingly cave cave into every request, and so in in the form of new speech codes and safe spaces or harsh punishments from kangaroo courts, this new wokeness that purports to to be about openness and breaking down barriers, as often as not in my view, results in a kind of closed mindedness and new barriers to learning and understanding. Students are protected rather than engaged. Um, Obviously, this is a big, you know, something that conservatives, political conservatives talk a lot about. In your mind, as you listen to that debate, is, is, is it a crisis? Is it a problem the way that conservatives talk about it? And how have you addressed this or handled this at Purdue? Um, well, first of all, um, uh, it's a serious problem. Um, I, I don't tend to think of it, at least not exclusively, in uh, philosophical terms. Um, the, the, the screaming irony often remarked on over recent years that that uh, places that are um, very uh, passionate about their commitment to, as we say now, uh, diversity in some forms um, uh, are uh, 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 have no uh, 
a particular regard for it. In fact, may may uh, stamp out a diversity of thought. And uh, the thought that gets stamped out, yes, is what we tend to call a conservative uh, uh, in modern parlance. But, you know, that's not the worst problem to me. The worst problem is that the uh, it's only through the collision of ideas that knowledge advances, whether it's scientific or social policy or otherwise. And, you know, that's the raison d'etre of, of, of our universities is the advancement of knowledge and, of course, its transmission to younger people. And uh, so, you know, set aside uh, ideology just for a minute and just contemplate um, the uh, risk we're taking, the damage we may be inflicting when, uh, uh, when only one school of thought uh, is permitted. Um, so, so that's part of it. You know, here at, at our place, um, we, uh, we have uh, people who believe they have all the answers and that others ought to, are, are not legitimate, but the very, I think, fewer of them. Purdue University uh, is uh, one of the most, as we say now, STEM-centric schools in the country that's very much by uh, uh, design over recent years. We've actually grown that. Probably two-thirds of our undergrads and a higher percentage of our grad students are in uh, science or engineering or mathematics. or, um, In other words, they and the faculty who teach them live more often in the world of objective facts and reality. So um, I, th- I think we've probably had uh, uh, a fewer uh, problems than, than some others have. But I'll just say our policy uh, is respect but not deference. Uh, as I sometimes say, respect but not deference to young people who, after all, are paying us a lot of money uh, to come here because of what they don't know. And um, we try not to lose sight of that. You have in in places like San Francisco, actually, um, school administrators at the K through 12 level challenging the idea of objective reality. You know, math is racist. We can't have two plus two equals four because it's it grows out of a system of privilege. And therefore, the answer that that produces um, is is somehow exclusionary. You have college campuses that have quite literally created safe spaces to prevent students from being subjected to the kinds of inquiry that you're talking about as, as so important. How, I mean, it's hard for those of us who, who aren't living on a university campus, uh, may interact with people from universities, either professors or students, to really get a sense of how prevalent that thinking is. Is, is it the kind of thing that's exaggerated? Because you know, it makes a good story. You can sensationalize it. And really, our universities are more still places for free and open inquiry. Or is it is the environment as stultifying as as some who have been raising alarms would suggest? I know there are places where it probably is the uh, dominant preve- pre- prevalent point of view. And, um, you know, we've, we've all read far too many accounts of, of, about that to, to doubt that. I think there are other places where it is um, you know, we we all should know uh, whatever the uh, the context that uh, not to confuse decibels with with uh, genuine uh, support. And uh, as in many other realms, I think the the, the loudest uh, it makes good copy. It makes good uh, um, you know uh, pictures. I sometimes say three people on a cardboard sign is a page one <laughs> uh, event. On, on a college campus. Um, but um, 
No, uh, unfortunately, it is it, it is uh, a a very genuine uh, problem. We uh, here were the first public university. There are now uh, a few dozen, at least, schools who have signed uh, what I like to call the Chicago Principles, because University of Chicago wrote them first. It's very interesting, by the way, to point out to people that uh, the, the that statement, which is a you said, uh, you know, banal, but uh, I think still it's important to say these things. It's an affirmation of the importance of free debate, free discourse, academic freedom in the genuine sense. Um, and um, that that uh, very good statement, which was so good that I just suggested our board just adopt it verbatim, not go through a lengthy drafting process of our own. And um but it was it was uh, the committee that uh, produced it was led by a, a self-avowed liberal from the 1960s who uh, Dr. Stone a very eminent constitutional scholar who cut his teeth defending um, the fr- the freedom of people of left-wing views to speak freely about Vietnam and so forth and uh, uh, two of the more interesting evenings that uh, I've sponsored here at Purdue where Dr. Stone came and uh, Nadine Strassen, the longest serving or long serving uh, uh, leader of the ACLU. Both of them have had this experience now of seeing um, the freedom of inquiry, the, the freedom of speech that they have championed so bravely over time, attacked by the people with whom they, uh, more in earlier days, were allied. Very ironic. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10 thousand dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. I want to dive into this a little bit more because I find it fascinating. Purdue adopted the Chicago principles in 2015, as you said, the first public school to do so. At that point, only Chicago and Princeton had statements like this. It's been six years. The uh, Foundation for Individual Rights and Education released their poll results uh, late in 2020 on where students stand. And two distinctions came out of where students are more illiberal in terms of speech Uh, One was the difference between Ivy League students and not. And then one was the difference between students who identified as liberal and not. I want to read you some of these numbers. Uh, Students identifying as extremely liberal said violence to stop a speech or event from occurring on campus was always or sometimes acceptable at a rate double that of students identifying as extremely conservative. More than 60% of extreme liberals said it's always or sometimes acceptable to shout down a speaker compared to 15% for extreme conservatives. But I almost found the Ivy League numbers more interesting. Students at Ivy League schools were slightly more in favor of using violence to stop campus campus speech. 21% expressed some level of acceptance for violence in these cases. 
37% of Ivy League students say that shouting down a speaker is always or sometimes acceptable, uh, more than 10% higher than students enrolled at non-Ivy League schools. And almost one in five Ivy League students find it always or sometimes acceptable to block other students from entering a campus event compared to one in 10 non-Ivy. What is happening at those schools in particular that's not happening at your school? And what advice would you give Ivy League schools to increase the level of speech and debate uh, and access to ideas that it appears is not uh, welcome? I don't have a ready answer for that. I, uh, I uh, also am demoralized by and discouraged by, um, you know, a, a rather constant flow of, of data like that and, and, uh, and, and anecdotes. I uh, maybe a little wishfulness in this. There has been uh, even at, even taking last year's uh, out when nobody was around to, um, you know, to shout down a speaker or uh, or uh, block a doorway. But uh, uh, even taking that out, there there seemed to be some diminution in the number of such uh, uh, events. And I hope that's a a trend that the uh, excesses and the really the outrageous character of some of this. Uh, has, uh, has has begun to have some effect. Uh, you know, the, we've all been waiting for some time, at least I have, um, for the market to begin speaking a little more loudly on some of this. And um, you've seen it over the course of time. Over the last 10 years, of course, attendance in higher ed total has gone down every year. And it, it, it's not simply a matter of too few young people. That's That's a factor. But um, and we'll see. It's going to be very interesting to see on the backside now of the pandemic, uh, with the very bad experience some people have had with their their um, uh, educational institutions. Um, uh, we'll be we'll learn a lot, I think, from enrollment this fall. Now, I just tell you that uh, we had a um, very surprising outcome here, which was. Um, another record, fourth in the last five years. We're going to be bigger at Purdue than we've ever been this fall. And the models, which have been very impressively accurate, you spent any time in government or even business like I have, uh, you know, you learn to be uh, be a little leery of uh, somebody's uh, model, but ours have been really very accurate until this year, and we just missed by a, a, a lot. Where, where was the miss coming from? Well, well, all I can just tell you is that uh, huge influx from other the other 49 states, and including a lot of coastal states. And we talked to some of our Midwestern uh, peer, peers who are having something like that same experience. So uh, fewer people may go to school at all, um, and uh, more may choose to um, to go to uh, you know a school where they think maybe there's more seriousness. Uh, of purpose about the academic exercise, less of the uh, of the uh, uh, pressure that you uh, just talked about to conform. Now, the Ivy League is just in a separate category, financially and otherwise. You know, people will still clamor to get there just for the uh, um, uh, the credential that it, the signal that it provides. If they never got to a single class, if they spent all their time blocking a, a speakers, um, you know, they, they, they probably still uh, believe they got a good deal for, from it. But uh, 
there are an awful lot of other schools, some of the smaller private schools where um, the uh, phenomena we're talking about has been just as um, as a graphic. And um, uh, some of them, I do believe, are going to struggle. I want to talk about the deal you just mentioned, because one of the things that sets Purdue apart that you have gotten uh, a lot of praise for, some criticism for, is the tuition freeze. If you could explain how that works, because again, I think part of what uh, higher education is being criticized for when you get sort of past just the speech is the enormity of the increase in tuition and that that appears to be going largely to administration, to uh, just palaces of dorms or gyms or, you know, like five Olympic pools because we can't just have one Olympic pool. How is Purdue doing a tuition freeze? What are the results that you're seeing? And how do you respond to your critics who say that you are undermining the institution? Well, we haven't heard much criticism now for a, a number of years. Um, I, I have to be honest with that, that. I guess maybe in the early days, people feared that we might shortchange the academic enterprise or there was some sort of trickery going on. And we're now um, in, in uh, year uh, nine uh, with with no increase. We actually reduced some other fees. So in, in nominal, uh, unadjusted terms, it's cheaper to go here, less expensive, I should say, than it was in 2012. And, uh, uh, you know, I usually ex- this, explain the uh, or answer your question by by uh, disabusing people of any suspicions. We didn't get more from our state, actually less. We didn't take on more, uh, let's say, international students. We've actually uh, managed that number or that percentage downward. We didn't go, we didn't downshift to less expensive faculty. We actually have one of the highest tenure track uh, percentages in the country. Uh, no, it was it was none of these things. It, um, it, first of all, it has uh, we think consistent with our land grant mis- mission. Um, we have uh, we're we're substantially bigger than we were, fifteen percent or more uh, bigger than we were uh, eight or nine years ago, and uh, so we have more revenue without raising prices. Uh, meanwhile, uh, I. I, my catchphrase is we we um, solve the equation for zero. We ask ourselves on an ongoing basis, what do we need to do to keep tuition down? And uh, let me just say that um, um, it's not unique to higher ed. It's certainly there in in uh, business, and it's there in a huge way in government. But there's a lot of low fruit in terms of expenses that really are not contributing to the mission. The, the the core mission of the place, and so we uh, we find them as uh, often as we can. We um, uh, I I do believe that uh, um, it, almost everybody here, especially now that we've shown some ability to do this, and the and the the feedback from students, of course, their parents, alumni, and taxpayers, and the just people in general has been very, very positive. And if you, as in any in, uh, big endeavor, if you can chart a goal that is, uh, that people can feel enthusiastic about and get the uh, people aligned around it and everybody looking and contributing in ways large or small, you'd be amazed what 
how much progress you can make. I've been amazed. I had never imagined at the outset that we would be able to continue as we have. But I, um, back to where you started, the uh, uh, I think every everything that was said about uh, uh, transgressions of, of of freedom and speech and so forth is is true, and it's a it's a big problem. But the biggest problem facing higher ed is the one you we just got to, which which is the value question. You know, how in the world can it be worth what I'm being asked to pay? Uh, how can it possibly be worth the, the borrowing I'm going to have to do with all the hurdles that's going to put in the way of my adult life? And uh, I didn't think I don't think it took a, uh, you know, clairvoyant uh, 10 years ago to see that. Uh, and uh, so we uh, we have never prescribed anything like the course we're on to anybody else. I, thank goodness higher ed has a huge variety in it. We, we need that. But uh, we think it fit our our mission and we think it served our individual institution pretty well. I want to ask you about debt of another kind. Um, you wrote, we've amassed a ruinous amount of national debt, current and committed, mathematically beyond the capacity of any economy to pay. This is a survival level threat to the America we have known. Left unaddressed much longer, it will permanently hobble the prosperity engine that's made us the world's great power and exemplar. You wrote that in a book that was published in September 2011. It's almost a full decade later. We have added a new entitlement. We've expanded another. There are attempts to broaden a third in, in Medicare. Uh, we've seen Republicans basically abandon any pretense of caring about debt and deficits. Donald Trump famously ran against entitlement reform after Paul Ryan had gotten the party to embrace it. Joe Biden proposed $6 trillion in new spending before he'd been president for 100 days. There's no talk. This is not part of the national conversation. Our political leaders are not talking about debt and deficits, restraint, spending. And since you wrote that our debt has grown from around $13 trillion to $28 trillion and climbing, if it was a survival level threat 10 years ago, what is it now? Oh, it's every, it's, it's, uh, that and more, you know, I write columns, um, for a East coast newspaper, not to be named. Uh, um, and, uh, I wrote one a few, a few months ago where I basically, uh, said it's time to throw in the towel. At the time I wrote the book, I thought the problem was looming. It was, it was, uh, you know, uh, every bit as menacing as you suggest is an incredibly unfair, unjust thing we are doing to the uh, succeeding generations. Um, even if the nation survives this, there, it will, uh, our, our uh, descendants will condemn us and they should, um, for, for the, uh, uh, burden we have left uh, to them. But, um, no, you know, uh, what I've said more recently, I wish I didn't think this. Um, it was possible at the time that book was written, it was possible for several years after that, uh, to say that, look, uh, come on, everybody, if this is, this is a wrong thing we're doing, and it's a very uh, potentially uh, 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 damaging to our national future, let's agree on, there's time, we have time to do this. Let's start taking some 
common sense steps that won't um, uh, injure anybody who is in need. I mean, I always talk about it in terms of saving the safety net. It is, uh, the people who profess to be, you know, uh, uh, the most concerned about uh, in- income inequality and so forth are the very people who are um, mathematically uh, destroying the uh, systems we have built to to buffer people and help them uh, avoid destitution. And anyway, um, uh, the, the position I'm in now lately I, is, is the one that uh, I think uh, may uh, some people believe uh, is the best uh, approach to uh, climate change, for instance. Okay, um, we're, we're past a point where you can just um, wish the problem away or whisk the problem away. Let's talk about mitigation. Let's talk about how we manage this problem. We are never going to be able to honor the, the promises we've made. We can't. We've gone, it's gone too far. At least I, I know of no non-draconian steps that could be taken. And, um, uh, but we, we better get busy now mitigating it in, in any way we can. Uh, and uh, so, it, so that when the reckoning comes, it is as gentle and as, as protective of those who really need these programs for whom we originally designed them as possible. All right. Last question. We're so grateful for your time. My husband notes that the, uh, that the Purdue basketball team has the highest minutes played in the tournament from players returning to this year's team than any other NCAA bracket team. Now he wants to be clear. He doesn't want you to jinx anything here, but is this the year? This could be the year. <laughs> uh, it really could be. We've got a fantastic group of young men, uh, enormous talent. We've got uh, two of the top uh, young players. They're both Hoosiers, by the way, uh, uh, in the coming uh, country coming in as freshmen. So we're very, very excited. I, but I just want to tell you something else. Uh, our our um, our athletic, our whole athletic department, first of all pays for itself. We have never subsidized it here. It was uh, something I checked before I took the job, by the way. It would have bothered me a lot if we were, if we were taxing the 98.5% of our students who can't make a, an intercollegiate team to, to provide for the rest. So that's one thing that I really appreciate. Uh, and, uh, and then secondly, um, uh, academics and character really counts here. And so, uh, and, and our basketball coach is, some might say old school to me, that's a, that's a great compliment, but uh, he leads a, a high character uh, program. Now, having said that, you know, I always say that uh, those are the prerequisites. Um, when I think about our athletes, real students taking real classes, getting honest grades, same standards of conduct as anybody else on campus, and pay for yourself. And I say, now, I want to win. I want to win every game. Want, you know? and, and our basketball team this year you is going to be a lot of fun to watch, I promise you. Well, we're doing our part. My son is off the chart, literally, for height right now. He turns one year old on Saturday. He can catch a ball and dunk a ball. So we have high hopes for approximately 18 years from now. We'll have an assistant coach out uh, scouting him uh, <laughs> later this month. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time. 
Uh, Mitch Daniels, check out Purdue and all the things that they're doing. You'll see them pop up in the news more often than you think. And it's not just the basketball team, although that's pretty fun too. Thank you. Thank you.